Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Elaine Hill, Associate Professor of Health Economics in the Departments of Public Health Sciences, Economics, and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Rochester. In today's episode, we'll ask Elaine about a recent working paper published with co-authors Alicia Cassidy and Lala Ma, in which they examine the effects of cleaning up hazardous waste in local communities. Specifically, the authors seek to determine whether these cleanups lead to environmental gentrification, where longtime residents are displaced, and the benefits of the cleanup accrue to higher-income newcomers. This issue has major implications for environmental justice outcomes, and the results of their paper and their implications are fascinating. Stay with us. Elaine Hill from the University of Rochester, welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. So Elaine, you work on all sorts of fascinating energy and environmental topics uh, related to health impacts. Um, And we're going to talk about a recent paper that you've co-authored with a couple of folks on today's show. But first, we always ask our guests how they got interested working on environmental or in your case, environmental and health issues. So kind of what inspired you to get into this field? Yeah, so I think... I think there is a, a, a way in which my interests uh, date back prior to graduate school um, in the sense that my family has always been really outdoorsy and interested in you know food systems and how uh, we might be able to contribute to um, our own health or the health of our community by buying locally and that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of my, my interest in environmental health and the intersections within economics, um, I was really inspired um, when I was a graduate student in Ithaca. Um, Josh Fox uh, came and did a premiere of his documentary Gasland in 2010. There were protests and all sorts of interest in, uh, you know, the colloquial term fracking and shale gas. And at the time, I had never heard of it. And I did a bunch of digging um, in my library and I don't even remember I know I don't think Google Scholar (laughs) maybe existed back then but you know searching for uh, research on the topic and there wasn't anything Um, and so I pivoted towards uh, trying to understand the impacts of fracking on health for my dissertation Um, and you know ultimately I think the the exciting part about studying that particular industry is that oil and gas can impact um, many things in a community. So, you know, migration, income, employment, housing prices, um, all sorts of community change. And in terms of in the environment, uh, you know, air, water, light pollution, noise pollution. And so um, by studying just that one industry, um, and I've been doing that for over a decade, it opened up my research program uh, to study all of these things um, in a way that I doubt I would have if I hadn't gone to see a documentary uh, the day before my 27th birthday. So, um, and now, of course, my research program has expanded, but that's where it comes from. Wow, that's so funny. And it's like, in lots of ways, you and I actually really share that past because my sort of initial work on energy and environmental topics was also on fracking right around that same time. Um, So, uh, and of course, your work on health impacts of fracking has been really valuable and certainly stuff that I've cited 
over the years. So, so thank you for that work. And I guess thanks to Josh Fox for making the movie and kind of getting uh, us and so many other people interested in this topic. But today, we're not going to talk about fracking. We're going to talk about a new paper uh, that's a working paper authored by yourself and Alicia Cassidy and Lala Ma. It's a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper. And it's about how uh, the benefits of hazardous waste cleanup are distributed uh, across communities. So before we talk about that specific issue and, and your findings and all that, can you get us started by just helping us understand the basics of the program that you study in the paper, which is called the Corrective Action Program, and how it differs from other federal cleanup programs that people might have heard of, like Superfund or Brownfields or others. Yeah, sure. So we study the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, which we lovingly call RICRA, um, and the Corrective Action Program was an extension of, of the original law, um, I believe it was uh, passed in 1986. Um, and, you know, this is somewhat unique compared to the other ones that you mentioned, in that it's meant to be a proactive program. So it targets firms or operators that are currently active, um, that are using or managing uh, hazardous waste. And so we're thinking of plants such as, you know, chemical manufacturing plants or oil refineries, lead smelters, these sorts of things that are ongoing and active. Um, and so, you know, we're thinking about uh, ways to regulate and manage um, hazardous waste to avoid these potential threats to human health and the environment. Uh, whereas I think for uh, brownfields or super funds, these are uh, places that are defunct or, you know, sort of legacy historical um, mistakes in hazardous waste management. And so the remediation um, is, is different, um, although not always uh, necessarily the case that RICRA um, sites are somehow less contamination. I think that that is still, um, you know, room for, for future research. Um, but the important thing is that these sites are continuing to operate after the corrective action program goes into place. That's great. And can you give us a sense of how these sites are distributed across the United States? Like how many there are, how big they are, you know, what types of environmental or health consequences that we would be typically worried about for the people who live in those communities? Yeah. So let me start with, um, you know, how widespread they are. So uh, they're they're national. They're they're pretty much everywhere. We have a map in the paper um, that shows that they may uh, be more distributed in the Northeast or, you know, in population centers that have, um, you know, more active manufacturing. Um, but there's close to 3,700 sites that are tracked in the cleanup program or the corrective action program. And uh, the EPA estimates that it spans about 17.9 million acres, um, which is approximately 17.5% of all developed land. So it's it's pretty extensive. In terms of the things that we're worried about, um, we're mostly worried about waste that could um, be released into the soil, groundwater in particular, um, possibly surface water, and then there could be some air pollution components here. So I think in terms of the health impacts, um, you know, the, all we, we have studies that suggest that, you know, waste uh, releases along all of those mediums could have impacts on health. Um, and I think future research really could dig into that more in terms of, you know, what we might be concerned about for the health of people living nearby. Um, but because it's all these different types of chemical manufacturing or, um, you know, 
preserving or steel mills or all these different types of um, facilities, including commercial landfills, I think the actual uh, toxins could vary um, and do vary across facilities. Yeah, really interesting. And just to give people a little bit of context, um, Ellen, correct me if I'm wrong, but from the paper, I think the program covers, as of 2011, about 18 million acres. Um, and to give people a sense of context, the state of Maine is like 22 million acres. So did I, does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So really, I was really surprised by the geographic extent of these facilities. I think we were too, actually, going into the research. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily something that we anticipated prior to, to beginning this work. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the other programs, Superfund, Brownfields, I, I feel like they're much more talked about than this program. And yet this program, just geographic footprint wise, is is much more substantial. Let's dig in now to um, uh, some of the specific questions that you and your co-authors ask. And for those of you who want to find the paper, of course, you can find it in a link uh, in our show notes, but you can also look it up. It's called Who Benefits from Hazardous Waste Cleanups? Evidence from the Housing Market. So can you give us a little bit of intuition for the hypotheses that you end up testing in the paper? So for example, like why might there be uh, uneven distributional consequences of cleanups from these facilities? Um, and how might they affect outcomes like environmental justice outcomes that we talk a lot about on the show? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the first places we begin in this paper is thinking about whether cleanups could have um, a benefit to housing values in the community. So that's kind of the first order, you know, question that we that we ask. But in terms of the second component, um, with respect to distribution and thinking about environmental justice, uh, we really are following Banzaf and McCormick, who pointed out, um, I think almost 15 years ago, that um, improving a neighborhood through one of these types of programs could result in increased housing prices. Um, and that results in what economists call sorting, right? So people moving into that neighborhood who are different from the people who were there before. And when that occurs, this cleanup could price out um, people who were originally in the neighborhood, uh, meaning that the community that was exposed to the site and, you know, experienced the harms, they, they basically may not benefit from the cleanup itself. So I think our research here is really trying to understand what some people call environmental gentrification. So when a policy with good intentions comes in and tries to fix uh, environmental harms, um, it can actually exacerbate some of the harms to uh, the population that was there originally. And so um, I think we are most interested in evaluating this program and asking, you know, whether there was a welfare improvement um, from, you know, this investment by the EPA and the, the federal government to manage hazardous waste. And, you know, if we don't take into account whether people, you know, respond by sorting or, or the, the housing values of the community change, um, it's, it's difficult to, to say what that welfare improvement would be um, because, if residents are paying higher prices to live in that neighborhood once it's cleaned up, you know, we have to weigh that increased price um, versus the increased environmental benefit that comes from the program. And so this is this is really the crux of what we're trying to do 
in this paper is understand whether this is happening in the context of the corrective action program under RICRA. That's great. And, and I'm going to ask you in just a second what you found on that question. But first, I think it might be helpful for our listeners who aren't economists and who haven't kind of looked at this world of research focused on housing and property values as a proxy for you know other outcomes that we care about, like exposure to uh, environmental risks. So can you just talk for a minute or two about uh, the use of property values to try to get at some of these underlying outcomes that we care about and, and the potential limitations uh, of using that metric? Yeah, sure. So before I go forward, I am the health economist on this team. So I do want to say that I have put on my environmental econ hat through my research, but it's definitely not the space that I was trained. So please forgive me and you can correct me if I uh, missed up here. But my um, my understanding is that, you know, we, we as economists have used um, what's called hedonic analysis or housing values to understand how people are you know, the sort of the willingness to pay of people to um, live near environmental nuisances. So if we think about um, valuing, you know, distance to a road or, um, you know, exposure to a toxic release inventory site or, or, or some of these sort of classic um, analyses that have that have taken place in the literature, economists are trying to understand, you know, what is that um, value that people place on um, nuisances that might be um, observed, right? Um, and and more recently, there's been some uh, pitfalls of this research and thinking through um, the information that individuals might have. So some of the environmental nuisances that we might be interested in studying may not be observable or understood by the community. Um, there's some recent work uh, looking at um, sort of hidden uh, pollution and exposure and how that may uh, disproportionately affect um, different populations based upon, you know, their their uh, socioeconomic status um, and, and sort of perpetuate uh, disparities. So I think, um, you know, the, the classical uh, approach is to think that, you know, the housing market has full information and is, you know, efficient in, in evaluating or the, the um, you know, that willingness to pay. Um, but there's more recent work suggesting that, you know, we need to be careful about some of those assumptions. And so the research is trying to, um, you know, better understand some of the mechanisms that would, you know, sort of violate those assumptions. And we were just talking about migration and sorting and people moving in a dynamic way. And ultimately, I think that's where we can see either, um, you know, worse environmental justice outcomes because of how people dynamically move and how the housing um, market works um, versus, you know, basically what we would think of as a static outcome. Um, so I, I don't know if I totally answered your question, but hopefully I did. Um. Yeah, no, no, you, you definitely you definitely got the got the key points, I think. And that's great. And people can, of course, dig more into this. Uh, by by reading the full paper and um, 
and also catching up on other resources radio episodes. We did an episode with um, Sam Stolper and Katie Hausman. Uh, oh, perfect. A that's, years that's, ago. A, that's a paper that I was just talking about. So yeah, yeah, I thought it might have been so. Um, so so we have covered that in previous episodes. Okay, so let's cut to the chase now after lots of really helpful background information. Um, can you highlight some of the key results that you and your co-authors found? Yeah, so we find an increase in housing values uh, following these uh, cleanups. And actually, the housing value increases persist for a number of years uh, post this corrective action um, you know, process. And I think importantly, we find that uh, this impact is affecting the lowest deciles of the housing price distribution. So um, individuals who may be lower income um, seem to have, you know, sort of a higher or a larger uh, relative impact. Um, in terms of the other part that we um, investigate, which we, we discussed in, you know, talking about the, the uh, hypotheses that we're looking at, we do not find any evidence of sorting. So we don't see, we use 17 different measures of characteristics um, and we do not see, you know, any statistically significant change in um, characteristics for the communities uh, living near um, these these facilities. And I think, you know, we, we went into this thinking we'd see at least one, you know, sort of from a statistical chance perspective, but um, it's very weak evidence. Um, so I think where we stand, and, you know, of course, this paper has to be um, peer reviewed, and we'll see if, you know, pushing this result more and more with, with help from our colleagues, um, we'll, we'll keep it. But ultimately, you know, we conclude that the benefits, these improved housing values um, from the corrective action program uh, seem to be uh, sticking around for for the community that, that was possibly harmed by um, living near these facilities prior um, to the cleanup. Mm -hmm. And so would a colloquial way of putting that being that, you know, this program seems to be reducing environmental justice disparities? Yeah, I think that's you know, we're like I said, we're we're sort of cautious because this is early work, but we um, we're pretty excited that that could be a, a conclusion. So yeah, yeah, really interesting. And and again, people can read the paper to to see all the details, but um, I, I thought it might be worth pointing out a couple of the you know specific outcomes that you look at. So there are three types of outcomes. One of them is income and education, so things like household income, education levels. Uh, uh, you know, public assistance, uh, dependency, their demographic characteristics, such as, you know, the race of the household, the population of the household um, that is that is white or under 18 years old, uh, and then housing uh, variables, like the people who live in mobile homes or uh, people who have moved in the last five years. And so across all those 17 outcomes, um, you know, no statistically significant um, negative impacts. It was really interesting. So, um, there are probably lots of policy implications that our listeners are thinking about, but uh, would you care to highlight a few of them that you think are particularly important or interesting? Yeah, I guess, you know, Alicia, Lala, and I talked about this a little bit, and I think, you know, the part that we we sort of landed on is that, you know, if we want to understand who's benefiting from a policy and this policy in particular, you know, we want to understand whether people are moving or, or, you know, 
things are changing in response to the policy. And and so while it seems like we're just stating again <laughs> that the RICRA program seems to have been improving environmental justice problems with, with these hazardous waste sites, um, that's basically what we think the policy implications of our findings is that the original beneficiaries um, that the cleanup was intended to help to address environmental justice, um, you know, are the people who are benefiting in this context. And, you know, that's somewhat rare for the various programs that have been evaluated in other contexts. So, um, you know, we're, we're pretty uh, pleased, I guess, with that, because, you know, that's one of the, the concerns with, with these programs. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this can help EPA in terms of thinking about, you know, either expanding this program or possibly there's ways that, you know, future research could understand why in this context um, we don't see, you know, the the type of sorting that we see in, in other contexts. Yeah. Well, I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit if you if you could. So, you know, what are the sort of hypotheses that you would want, want to test um, to answer that question of, you know, why is it that this particular program is, you know, if, if the results hold, um, you know, why is it that the corrective action program is appears to be reducing some of these environmental justice burdens as opposed to, you know, what, what other programs might be doing, which could be exacerbating environmental justice concerns. Do you have any kind of thoughts or um, guesses on that? I know you'd have to do the research to answer it definitively, but I'd love to hear your kind of initial thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think my, my first thought here is that, you know, these, these um, facilities are still in operation. And so it's very possible that the community is not seeing too much difference, right? They live near these facilities. They exist. They've been running for, you know, possibly 40 or more years, right? They're, they're a fixture in the community. So I think for some of the other programs, you know, there might be signage and, you know, the, the whole uh, area would completely change after some sort of cleanup. Um, but in this case, this is possibly hidden um, contamination that the community may not be aware of, right? And so that that's kind of my first thought. Um, other than that, I, I think... Um, it may also be, you know, or at least Lala and I think, I don't want to speak for Alicia, but, you know, this this hidden contamination component where um, these these sites might be affecting groundwater or soil, um, you know, it's it's very possible that uh, it's, it's a different type of um, contamination for the community to respond to in the first place. So, um, you know, but then at the same time, we see improvement in housing values. So there must be some degree of salience to this. So it's it's hard to say, um, you know, something must be changing with the, the cleanup program that the community is valuing, right? And so it, it can't all just be the case that it's hidden. Um, so yeah, I think I've uh, talked myself into a little bit of a circle there, but I think, I think that's where the research could really um, push, right? Um, to try to understand... Like if a facility is continuing in operation and, um, you know, cleanup is occurring to maybe it's a trust thing too, right? People may be like, okay, so, you know, this 
this management is regulated and, um, you know, it's improving uh, the likelihood that this ongoing facility could be affecting my community. You know, I think I think this is where uh, there could be some qualitative um, or I should say, you know, gathering information from communities that are nearby to try to understand, you know, what those dynamics might be. Um, to you know, I don't know that the kind of data that we use in this study, or the kind of data I generally use in my research, would get at the mechanisms for what makes this unique. You know, it might need some surveys or um, you know key informant interviews, that sort of thing, to to dig into more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, one of the exciting things about at least you know some of the scholars that I think are working on. EJ type issues is that they are really trying to integrate the bigger data work uh, that we're talking about in today's paper with the sort of more on the ground, collaborative, engaged, community engaged research that can really help flesh out um, uh, some of the bones to, to try to get at the root of these questions. So um, you, uh, Elaine, have alluded to other research uh, in this field, and I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about how your findings connect with other economic or you know public health research on this topic related to environmental justice and gentrification. Uh, so can you just walk us through uh, those connections? Sure. So you mentioned Hausman and Stolper, and I, I think, you know, we we are pretty inspired by their work they you know they focus on air pollution but in that paper they they highlight that imperfect information um you know especially in the housing market um can potentially cause low-income households to sustain you know sort of a, a higher deadweight loss from pollution and so you know there's also work by um Bakinson and ma um, who show that at least in flood risk, um, that some of these sorting responses that we're, we're interested in studying uh, may exacerbate the sort of pre-existing pollution disparities that can occur in a community. And so I think we're really trying to contribute to this literature. Um, and we, we discussed already at length, but because we do not see evidence of sorting, um, you know, after these RICRA cleanups, um, then, you know, it, it both shows that it might not always be the case that policy responses would exacerbate pre-existing pollution disparities, and furthermore, that these cleanups could mitigate the pre-existing exposure disparities that could be due to partial information. So, um, you know, I think we're we're contributing to this literature and then possibly providing this this hopeful conclusion um, to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, th and then, of course, additional research questions, right? There's certainly, we've talked about a couple of them already. Are there any other kind of big research questions that you think really come out of this analysis that you're working on or, or your colleagues are working on that you uh, just want to highlight for our listeners? Sure. So, I mean, I think we, we alluded to at least one that, you know, what determines neighborhood turnover in response to cleanup policies, I think, could really help get at that underlying mechanism that would be useful for the policy implications. Um, but more broadly, uh, I think at least my research program is really interested in coupling the housing market responses with 
um, the actual health effects um, of environmental exposure. So I think, you know, we might say, oh, the, in the housing market, we see people responding to exposure. But the question is, is that exposure actually harmful to their health? And so while the environmental economics literature may be interested in, you know, costs specific to moving um, or discrimination and barriers um, to achieving better environmental outcomes, um, you know, I think combining those studies with health impact studies can then, you know, shed light on, you know, information and salience that we were really just discussing. Um, and this can be super helpful for policymakers um, because, you know, coupling the two, I think, gives a more holistic understanding. Um, and lastly, I would just say that, you know, when economists contribute to understanding the health impacts of environmental exposures, um, you know, we, we can provide these much needed estimates, um, you know, to even inform what regulations could have substantive benefits to health. And so I think that's kind of where at least our own research program, you know, is going. So, you know, we're, we have a companion paper, um, you know, not to plug it, but, you know, we're working on it and it should be coming out um, next spring or summer, um, you know, looking at infant health impacts in these communities with the Berkeley cleanup program. But I think when, uh, you know, research programs combine both the, the hedonics with some sort of health impact study, it can, it can really um, bring that kind of light that we need. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And plug away. You are always welcome <laughs> to plug your own research when you're a guest on the RFF podcast. Um, but let's shift gears now, Elaine, and ask you to plug uh, someone else's work um, where we're going to ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, that's related to the environment or health or any of the stuff that we're kind of covering today that you think is great uh, and that you think our listeners would enjoy. So, uh, Elaine, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, so I recently listened to a podcast called Scene on Radio. It's S-C-E-N-E on radio, and they're documentary-type podcast. Um, this is focused on climate um, and climate crisis, and the season that they put forth is called The Repair. And the thing that I just loved about this podcast was um, how they explored the historical and cultural roots of the crisis, um, which I think is really important for thinking through policy remedies. Um, and they also visit a number of frontline communities around the world that could be of interest to some of the researchers listening um, to your podcast. Um, and finally, they, they discuss solutions, I think, in a really thoughtful way. Um, so I highly recommend that. Great. Scene on radio. Sounds really interesting. I'll definitely check it out. And I'm sure many of our listeners will too. So one more time, Elaine Hill from the University of Rochester, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing this fascinating work with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.